From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast, Friday edition. What have you guys been reading? A lot of great stuff on the site oh, recently. Oh, says the editor-in-chief. <laughs> okay. The- also, I just want to let everyone, I'm going to live, live track this. I just received my update on my um, phone that I've received one star at Think Coffee, so my coffee <laughs> will arrive soon. We, we sent a little uh, a little courier <laughs> for coffee today. Um, but, you know, we, had to, we, we couldn't let the people wait, so we had to start recording. Yes, yes. Um, so what, what, uh, what okay. have you been reading? Okay. Um, the one piece I wanted to mention uh, was... Uh, published last week from Robert Simonson about the airport martini. And I really liked this piece because, yeah, so I. I know, <laughs> because I thought it was fascinating kind of the, the, the mechanisms at work behind these airport bars that I, th- I think people aren't aware Explain of. Explain those mechanisms. Yeah, like these big companies that even if you bring in a local bar like Cure in New Orleans, for example, is at the airport there that it's not actually staffed by Cure um, personnel because there are some there are a lot of like roadblocks to doing that, like having having a team that actually commutes to the airport and goes through security um, and wants to work those types of hours. Um, it just it's not really feasible, and so uh, these bigger companies uh, send their staff there, and so that's why a lot of the time when you have um, expectations around the types of cocktails that you're going to get or drinks that you're going to get at the airport, they might be a little dashed because um, it's not going to be the exact experience that you get at the bar, um, even if it's the same name. Interesting. Yeah. I'm curious what the benefit is for Cure. Yeah. Like, why would you oh, be... The, you're curious what the benefit yeah. is for Cure. I, I think it's just like name recognition. Um, money. Money, sure. Money. Of course it's money. Yeah. Right? But I think that's, I mean, for those types of um, companies, it's good for, like, building an empire. Not an empire, but, like, yeah, building a brand, I yeah. would say. Cool. Yeah. Zach? You know, I was really drawn to Maggie Hennessy's piece about 70s cocktails. Uh, I think we maybe once long ago talked on this podcast about my, I guess, mildly successful effort to make uh, my own version of Southern Comfort. Uh, back when I was bartending and I was just reading this piece thinking about like so many of those cocktails I think the you know like the white Russian was like my first go-to cocktail order as like a college kid poor choice in retrospect but like worked (laughs) for me at the time and you know it's just interesting because I feel like this era of we've talked a little bit about this before on the pod like this era of cocktails tends to either get kind of purely dismissed as like they're all bad which not untrue exactly mm-hmm. or when people try to kind of harken back to the 70s and 80s or or do sort of plays on them these sort of disco cocktails they they just kind of take the visual component and and sort of leave behind the the sort of flavor notions of those drinks and and again maybe rightly so for modern sensibilities but just was interesting to kind of think about how you know the some of the same uh, imperatives and some of the same motivations that was that were behind the creation of those drinks and the popularization of those drinks are, are you know still very valid today and uh, you know as I mentioned a moment ago one of the biggest ones is the visual appeal of drinks because so many of those 70s and 80s drinks were striking to look at and that was their mm-hmm. you know their selling point more than perhaps anything else yeah that was a good article too yeah what about you Adam Robert Simonson's take on Athens as the most exciting uh, city in Europe right now for cocktails. Yeah. Did you tell him just like to get on your level? You've been saying this for a long time. Uh, basically, <laughs> it was Adam's idea. <laughs> yeah, I basically did. Oh, look who it is! 
It's Tim McCurdy. Thanks, Tim, for the coffee. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Tim. Hope you got yourself something as well. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, I... Uh, ooh, and now it smells like a coffee bar in here. Um, I've thought that Athens was one of the most exciting cities for cocktails for a while now. A lot of those reasons are... are Exploring the piece, some are not. I think one of the biggest ones is economics. Uh, it's one of the more affordable uh, cities with a lot of uh, history and culture in Europe. Uh, so it's attracted a lot of, you know, uh, restaurant and bar personalities who can open things right in the same way that people move to Bushwick mm-hmm. or uh, you know other places, Philly, uh, from New York because it's more affordable, Philly. Um, so I, I I don't know. I think that Athens is a really fun city and. If you're thinking about going there for the summer, you definitely should. And that's basically all I got to say about that. So here's my thing, right? Oh, we're just getting right into it. Oh, we're getting right into it. And I haven't even had coffee yet. Here's my thing. Uh, So over the break, we don't really take breaks at Vine Pair, but you know what I mean. We weren't in the office for over a week. We work us to the bone here. Yeah, to the bone, especially Zach. Uh, (laughs) So we took a few long walks, and one of the walks we decided to take was from Fort Greene to Williamsburg, which is a decent hour walk. And on this day, we also, that night, were planning on making that paella that I talked about on a previous episode where I paired that delicious Rioja. Mm -hmm. And we needed sherry. So walked into this very trendy wine shop in Fort Greene as the first stop. It's on Myrtle. You may or may not know it. (laughs) And asked about sherry, to which I was answered... I think we have one or two bottles, maybe. Well, have you had either of these bottles? Oh, no. Is there anyone working on the floor that's had either of these bottles? Hey, has anyone ever had any of these bottles? Mm-hmm. Uh, no. Okay, we're going to keep walking. Proceeded to have that experience all the way to and from Williamsburg in six other wine shops. So seven in total. At which point, at the seventh, which was located very down, like very near the water in Domino Park, I just gave the fuck up mm-hmm. and bought a sherry. I would say, on average, every shop carried two sherries. That's it. Sometimes they carried one that was dry. Sometimes they carried both that were sweet. Sometimes they didn't fucking know. Okay. Right? (laughs) Almost every time, the person in the shop was completely unfamiliar with the wine. Wow. Did not... In two different shops, both very, very cool kid shops in Williamsburg, did not know where it was in the store. Mm Mm-hmm. Which has led to me to have the conclusion that I've had forever, which is that Sherry is never fucking going to happen. I think the conclusion and is I think different, it's actually. Dead. Yeah, that and I was think the it's conclusion. Dead. I think that five years ago when I would sit in editorial meetings and we'd get a Sherry pitch and I'd be like, nah. <laughs> like, prove to me the data and no one could prove to me the data. At least in New York City, I felt like you would see Sherry everywhere. People were doing Sherry programs. You know, people were thinking about stocking more sherry in their wine shops. Like when I came back from Spain, yeah, I guess over a half decade ago, and I was like, oh, I got a little taste for sherry. I was able to buy cool sherries in New York. Mm -hmm. Now I would say probably unless you go to like Despana or – Which is a specialty. A specialty Spanish Spanish food and wine shop. Uh, You know, or there's a few others who someone will correct me on and send me an email and be like, you forgot these three shops, so I'm not even going to try to remember them. It's really hard to find Sherry because I th- I think everyone realized what we already knew to begin with, which is no one cares. Nobody's interested in that drink. 
And I'd like to explore the reasons why, but the only thing keeping sherry alive is the need for its casks for scotch. And that's really it. If not, it would be extinct. And you can say that I'm not being nice and you can say that I'm being a curmudgeon and I'm being a jerk about sherry and it's not cool. I like sherry. I think there's really cool sherries, but I'm just saying I'm, I'm willing to recognize that the majority of the world doesn't. And what I'm curious about is why. Is it a majority of the world? Well, the majority of America. Okay. That's the world, right? We have a World Series. You win the World Championship in football. You know? It's true. Like, we, we just think we are the world. Mm-hmm. We are the children. Anyways, continue. What is it? What is it about it, Zach? Why do people hate fucking Sherry? <laughs> well, I think it's, it's a bunch of reasons. And I was going to note that, like, Sherry, its modern incarnation is it's, it's like – 90% to provide casks for scotch and other single malts and 10% for cocktail recipes. But yep. neither of those is particularly concerned with like the really special, premium, interesting, specific, uh, you know, sort of expressions of sherry. They're more about, you know, reasonable quality and relatively exp- or inexpensive. And I think, you know, having been you know, not like front line of the attempts to make sherry a thing, but running restaurant wine programs at the time when this was starting to happen, being around some places in the Seattle area that being that a sherry ambassador. Kind of, yeah. yeah, I was not ever a sherry ambassador. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. No, sorry. I don't want anyone to think that you were. I was fucking around. No. Continue. I think that the problems that sherry faced were a little bit timing based and a little bit kind of. Uh, how do you describe it? Like it was, it, it was trying to do too many things at once. And you know, I mentioned cocktails, and I think that's a really interesting point of sort of exploration for me because I think Sherry has had some success at pitching itself as an important part of a bar program, right? Whether it's cocktails like the Bamboo that that heavily call for Sherry, or even just using it as a uh, you know, kind of interesting modifier in a lot of drinks that might otherwise use vermouth or things like that. It has real spots in bar programs, but a there it's not being served on its own, so its its role is as an ingredient, and no one is really out there advocating for you know dedicated vermouth lists and things like that in restaurants or even at shops. I mean, obviously some places have bigger selections than others, but like sherry, it's sort of found its place as a ingredient in cocktails and less a standalone item, and. Those kind of um, applications are so poorly suited to variation and exploration because you really want the sherry to do a specific thing in a drink and you want every bottle you open to do the exact same thing. So you want, you know, your sort of uh, straightforward Fino or Amontillado or whatever to fit that bill. You don't necessarily want to explore all of the interesting things that the the sherry aficionados, the people who are really evangelizing it as a as a wine for you know kind of consuming with a meal, would have you think were deeply exciting. And, and in a sort of stepping away from the business of it for a second, I mean they are they're interesting expressions. There's a lot of variation in sherry, whether it's the where it's made, the production method, the specific variety or varieties used. There's a lot there to explore, and yet like the modern wine world has just over and over again been like, yeah, we're good. Yeah. And I think part of it is it's, it's a heavily, it's heavily sort of centered around the production method. And that even though Sherry is in a lot of cases, like an artisanal product, it kind of cuts against a lot of what people have been talking about in wine of late, right? People talk about low intervention and Sherry is like super high intervention. Hmm. 
and it's process oriented and and only champagne and sparkling wine have been able to kind of escape from the way that we tend to look at process oriented wines as lesser and sherry just has not been able to escape that sort of vortex yeah i agree i mean i i don't think anybody hates sherry right but i don't think people think of sherry ever never and i think that people beyond that people just really don't know about it and i think there's probably a lot of you know, people maybe think it's cooking sherry or whatever, you know, they just like don't know anything about sherry. And, and so beyond just seeing it maybe in a cocktail. And I think also if people see it in a cocktail, they're probably deterred from getting it. Right. Because like, I don't want wine in my cocktail. Like maybe it's less boozy that way. Like I think like the bamboo is a low ABV cocktail. Right. Like I think that when people are out and they see sherry, they're like, I don't want that. I mean, that's how I am, probably. <laughs> um. Do you also think, do you think it's because people are just fundamentally, as a, if we're, again, if we're just grossly generalizing, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Spain, grossly. that Spain as a country is just less intriguing to a lot of Americans than Italy or France are? Yes, I mean, I think 100%. This, this, this cuts against, I think this is true for Spanish wine in certain cases. I mean, we've talked, mm. Adam, every time we talk mm. about, like, what about cava? Adam is like, nah, ain't happening. And... I don't necessarily think you're wrong, but I think it suffers from some of the same problems, which is like Spain just does not, for you know, historic reasons, things like that, does not capture as much of the American imagination. It doesn't have the same kind of romantic connotations to the average American as France or Italy do. And I think that explains a lot why this product, which, you know, could perhaps have more resonance if it were not, if it were from France or Italy in certain ways. It just has not ever really grabbed a hold of people. I think that if you polled most people, they wouldn't know that Sherry is from Spain. There's that, too. I think I really think that's the case. But I, I think you're right. I also I question a lot whether it also just has to do with the name in general, like Sherry. Does that sound like something people are interested? I don't know. And then also it has always had this very strong association with the greatest generation oh, and yeah. old la- and the, and the women from that generation yeah. especially like cream sherry yeah. and you know i think until a few generations pass that will be the i mean i remember my grandmother liked cream sherry mm-hmm. it just was an old person's drink yeah. weirdly um again nothing against old people no no some of my best friends are old people um the thing that what zach is bringing up though is really interesting i think if you asked the majority of people to name like the iconic cuisines of spain Mm-hmm. That they crave. You mean like dishes? Or, yes. Okay, yeah. We taught us before. I, you know the the cuisines that we get to know or that morph into other cuisines are how we then so readily adopt the wines of those places and the and the spirits of those places. So right, French. Okay, fine. Yes, we we first of all we do know the French foods. We know the classic French foods, but then we also just think that anything basically at this point cooked with butter is probably French mm-hmm. and like in the French techniques in the same way that like it's not fair but it is what it is like Italy has basically made you believe that if you if you use olive oil with it it's probably it's, it's somehow an Italian riff or Greek or Greek yeah. right and it's Mediterranean diet even though Spain is very much Mediterranean diet yeah. I think when you talk to most people the cuisine is like jamón iberico most people know jamón a lot of people would know jamón sure a lot of people would know tortilla. They might not know that, it's, that it is Spanish tortilla, but like mm-hmm. they're selling it frozen in Trader Joe's now. Oh, okay. okay. So Fair. someone knows that maybe. That's an egg-based dish. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
and then they know tinned fish, but like not associated with Spanish wine. And Portugal has as strong of a claim to it. Yeah. So. Wait, did you say paella? Did I miss I, that? Yeah, I was and, just going to say paella and, is the and number one. And the last yeah. is paella, which was what we were making. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's really it. And like maybe, like maybe if you know, if you've gone to a Spanish restaurant, you might know pan con tomate. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. That's kind of it. And across Spain, you th- those are the dishes you see over and over and over again in different varieties even. And I think that that is hard then to bring that cuisine to the U.S., in a bunch of different varieties. The, the cuisine that probably should come to the U.S. more is, you know, the ba- more Basque, et cetera, from the north of Spain, where we sort of see San Sebastian and the, the molecular gastronomy, et cetera. But then that doesn't seem that Spanish to most people. And we don't associate those that cuisine with their wines. I mean, we had a tapas moment, right? I was like, going to say, I tapas like is that... the other thing we haven't talked about. Yeah. We, we did, but it's like those five or six dishes on the tapas menu and patatas right. bravas. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like, 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 it's, 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 and maybe there's like a sausage or something. Right. And it's only in that moment that people think of Spain and think of Spanish wine. So maybe at a Spanish restaurant, you're willing to have sherry at some point during your meal because you're at the tapas restaurant and someone tells you that you should have mm-hmm. sherry. Even though when we really had that tapas moment, like in the turn of the set, like the, the into the early aughts, mm-hmm. people were like a lot of them were like nightclubs serving all kinds of shit. It was like the idea of like small bowls, share, get fucked up. Yeah. And the difference with another spirit that I think was even more far gone and now is massive, Amaro, mm-hmm. is that it broke fully out of Italian food. And now like Amaro is on everybody's fucking list. I think that's because of a few things. I think one huge thing with sherry is that people don't really know when to drink it, like what yep. the drinking occasions are for sherry. Because there's too many varieties of it for people it, to understand. Uh, exactly. And people don't un- people don't understand or know enough no. about the category, right? I think with Amaro, you know, we saw, we saw like the rise of the Negroni and a lot of these uh, similar cocktails that brought these bitter liqueurs and... and um, spirits to to this to the american palate i guess like people got obsessed with the negroni and so then i feel we talked about this in the context of like our amaro conversation like that was a huge part of of its success and its proliferation and the you know the local ones we'll see here i think similarly with vermouth um it's a part of very popular cocktails in the way that sherry is not i think if for whatever reason the bamboo took off tomorrow Maybe this would be a different conversation. But like it won't. the the bamboo it's the year of the bamboo just like it was the year of the martini, right? Like but I don't know what what it would take for that to happen and I think that as a result like we will we, yeah, we will never see sherry kind of go beyond what it's been in the past. Right. Which means we will forever be searching for a store that sells more than two bottles of sherry. Did you need it for the paella or did you want it to drink it? I wanted to drink it. And so that's why I was also like, I wanted an interesting sherry that we could drink because I didn't want to, she needed like a quarter cup or something. something, Yeah. Yeah. For the paella. And then I wanted to drink it and nobody could tell me boo about it. (laughs) And I was just like, okay, this is ridiculous. What, what is, what is happening? You know, I want to add a piece to this because I think it's really important is like, we've talked about, the sort of lack of a drinking occasion for sherry. And I think sometimes 
we're framing it sort of in the context of in restaurants and things like that, which is obviously very understandable. But I think even more to the point, it's hard for people to find the context in their own lives at home, too. I mean, unless you're someone who really is like, I'm making paella a lot. For a lot of people, it's just, you know, including, I guess, for you guys, it's like, oh, shit, yeah, we do need sherry. Ah, we don't have any. Like, let's go try and find some or just not bother. And, again, it's just like such a – like, even for me, I have – if I were to open the door to where I record and look at the shelf where the various fortified wines in my collection sit, I have like four bottles of sherry. And I probably last opened a bottle two years ago. I'm not even sure why. I think probably actually someone was making paella, and I was like, ah, finally, a sherry. <laughs> I can, we can open this wine. And and I like sherry fine. I have I enjoy drinking it when I get to it. It's always fun to have a thing, but it's it's this problem that, that fortified wines in general have. It's, it's less intense in certain ways for the dry sherries because they're at least not also dessert wines, but they remain kind of like, man, you got to be kind of in the mood. You got to kind of have a few people like – I'm just not going to sit and have two glasses of sherry. Like it's just not even even I who enjoy it a fair bit. And you know, one of the one of those moments where you learn, at least for me, when I learned when like there's this huge disconnect in wine, not just wine, but wine often between like things that people are passionate about, things that are on their face interesting. And how that connects to everyone else. There was a restaurant that opened in Seattle, like, God, probably a decade plus ago, that back when I was uh, writing for a local publication here, I actually got and went and reviewed along with our food critic because one of their big focuses was their sherry program. And they're like, well, you know, our food critic doesn't really know much about sherry. We should probably send our drinks guy along to go, like, talk about this. And I just remember being there, having the dining experience. There was lots of really interesting stuff, had some interesting sherries. That was all very well and good. But I just remember looking around the dining room being like, man, like, there are like, you know, 50 tables in this spot and like four people are drinking sherry and like this is the tent pole. Everyone else is drinking red wine, even though it's not really meant to go with a lot of this food. And like just one of the things where like, you know, you can have something that all the things that we say about sherry can be true. It can be high quality. It can be interesting. It can be, you know, lot complex. There can be lots of interesting things about it. And yet none of that means fuck all because in the end people just – they're just – so much bandwidth that people have and i just don't think yeah there's just kind of hard to imagine how sherry is ever going to be more than a, a curiosity or a sort of vassal state of the scotch industry yeah there is a great um episode there's a great article on our site by evan rail about sherry casks about what exactly what uh, zach is mentioning and, and it's uh if you haven't read it you should yeah it's great and apparently according to some of the you know younger people in the office who have their finger on the pulse of what the cool kids in wine are doing right now yeah the new thing is madeira anyway so whatever (laughs) okay i was reading i was reading a drinks i was reading a wine trend no drinks trend piece recently from another publication i can't remember what it was and they said that uh it was going to be a big year for fortified wines including sherry and godspeed just Just laughed (laughs) and then threw the whole publication in the garbage (laughs) my computer yeah Oh, yeah, because no one does print anymore. Anyways, uh, so we that's what we think about Sherry. Let us know what you think about Sherry. Hit us up at podcast.vinepair.com and tell us we're wrong, but we're probably not. Uh, in this case, in this case, we're wrong about other things. Also, to the reader, I'm sorry, to the listener that emailed in and told me that I wouldn't be invited to the Cider Fest. I see you. Uh, <laughs> all right. I will talk to both of you next week. Have a good weekend. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be 
iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.